Hello, my name is Josh Hirsch, and normally I would start off this podcast by thanking Rob Carr and the BMJ. However, in this case, we have a bit of a unique podcast, and I think, as you'll see, uh, that would be a bit redundant. Today's article is the peer review process, a primer for JNIS readers, and it went online first in April of this year. A little bit of context on, on this particular article, a number of the authors uh, were vexed by the fact that many of what they thought of their most interesting articles were having trouble in various ways getting through the peer review process at a variety of journals. So like many projects, this particular effort didn't start off with a vision. It started off as an effort to find out whether or not there had been a discussion in the literature of things like bias and whether or not there were uh, predicates for what we thought we were seeing trying to get some of our own publications published in the peer-reviewed literature. I think what surprised many of us was just how robust a literature existed on this point. I'm really delighted to have a uh, fantastic panel. Dr. Fiona Godley has been editor-in-chief of the BMJ since 2005. Since joining the BMJ in 1990, she's written on a broad range of issues, including the ethics of academic publication and the problems of editorial peer review. She has served as president of the World Association of Medical Editors and chair of the Committee on Publication Ethics and is co-editor of Peer Review and Health Sciences. So welcome, Fiona. Thanks very much, Josh. Rob Tarr, really there's little one would need to say to this uh, particular audience, but of course, Rob is director of an important academic neurointerventional service in Cleveland, Ohio. He's had every leadership position at the SNIS, excuse me, and before that, the ASITN, and is naturally the editor-in-chief of JNIS. Well, thanks, Josh. Thanks for those uh, kind words. Well, with that, I I, want to get started on this uh, tremendous topic uh, with uh, Fiona. Uh, I'd I'd love to start by asking you about the history of peer review and the role that BMJ has played in the evolution. Well, thanks, Josh. Um, Peer review as we know it, in terms of sending articles out for external experts to comment on, has, I suppose, been around since the explosion of science and journals in, I would say, the 1950s. Versions of it obviously existed long before that. Um, But in terms of the kind of huge process that a lot of academics are now part of, um, that's really when I would imagine it set off. And uh, you could imagine editors being confronted with an increasingly specialist type of content that they themselves, as editors, weren't really in a position to assess. Um, And so the idea of sending it out to to experts in the field and getting their views to help decision-making has emerged. And and I would say it's been a very successful enterprise. Um, but of course, like any human process, it is prone to the errors of uh, and flaws of human nature. Um, and uh, as a quick summary of the problems that it, it encounters, it can be very slow, it can be expensive, it can be biased, it can be open to abuse, it can be criticized for stifling innovation, uh, it's considered to be very bad at detecting error and pretty much hopeless at detecting fraud. Um, and the BMJ, uh, along with other journals, has has 
put quite a lot of energy into trying to understand peer review and to evaluate it and to put it under the same sort of scrutiny, if you like, as the papers that it is itself scrutinizing. So to see peer review as, as something worthy and needing proper scientific evaluation of itself. And so we at the BMJ have been part of a, a so-called journalology initiative, which has try to do actual proper research into the quality of peer review and interventions to improve peer review. For example, blinded peer review versus open peer review, whether you train peer reviewers, whether you can do peer review in real time as opposed to waiting for um, it to happen behind the scenes. How transparent can one be about the process itself? So those are some of the things we've been doing and, and, and looking even further to innovate. We're now introducing um, patients as peer reviewers to try to make sure that the research we publish is relevant to patients. And and there are continuing initiatives to, to look at whether whether one should actually have pre-publication peer review at all, whether we should move to a situation as in the physics uh, academic community where papers are simply posted and the community at large comment on them before they're published in um, medical journals more formally. So how much more transparent and real-time could peer review become? I, I think there are so many innovations that you uh, listed. All of them are really quite exciting. I, I particularly like the idea of subjecting peer review to the type of analysis that articles or original research uh, manuscripts are, are subjected to, meaning let's study the process and make sure that the process lives up to the articles that it's attempting to review. One other quick point that we drew attention uh, in the article to, and I, I will share with you, Fiona, that the BMJ was actually one of the first major journals to appreciate that this process was indeed important and sent every non-editorial submission to a recognized expert since the late 19th century, which is, which is pretty neat, I think. Well, that's that's very good to hear. And, and I think the other thing that would be worth mentioning is the role of statistical peer review. So looking at the idea of really understanding the importance of statistics and how non-expert most peer reviewers were in statistics. So the BMJ in the, in the 70s and 80s um, made that a very much part of the routine peer review process. And we have a, a wonderful team of statistical peer reviewers who keep us on our toes a great, a great point. And in terms of BMJ's peers, while uh, uh, the 70s might have been a time when you were focusing on statistical peer review, it's worth noting that it was not until 1976 that the Lancet implemented peer review. With that, let me swing over to, to Rob. We heard from Fiona, Rob, that there are a variety of types of peer review, double-blinded, open, etc. I wonder if you could talk to us about the JNIS approach. To peer review. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, so we had to work a little bit um, with BMJ to do do this. We didn't start out initially with this process, but we've since gone to a double-blind method of peer review in that the, the reviewers and, and um, also the authors are not aware of one another. You know, whether that's right or not, I'm still not sure. And whether it makes a difference. I'm still not sure. I mean, there are some people that would argue that, you know, a lot of times uh, you can tell the research group just by the nature of the article and the um, and the references and, and that sort of thing. But we make our best 
effort, you know, once manuscripts are submitted and being processed, our editorial assistant screens them um, and erases references to uh, institutions within the uh, manuscript. The, the exception to that is that, you know, that the uh, I am aware of the authors and, and the associate editors that are handling the article are aware of the authors. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose it's not completely double-blind, but it, it's at least double-blind between the authors and the reviewers. Rob, have you been happy with that approach? Yeah, I, I think so. But again, as I said, and as you mentioned in the article, there's some question whether it's worth the trouble. In other words, does it really help the review process? And I, I mean, I would applaud... Fiona's outline for scientifically studying the peer review process, you know, I don't think we've gone to that length for our journal, and, and maybe it's something that, that we need to do. Moving on, one of the most interesting parts of this project had to do with this idea of bias, because it's easy to say that we're getting a biased review, but I think when one gets an article rejected, that is a, a, a refuge that one can take. It's not the fault of the article, it's the fault of the reviewer. So I, I, I was pleasantly surprised, in a sense, to find out that I was not the first person that thought maybe I had been unfairly treated in the hands of a peer-reviewed journal. I'm sure I won't be the last. And as we discuss in the article and we referenced in our earlier comments, there really is a very, very robust uh, literature on the different types of peer review bias. So, uh, Fiona, sort of a, a difficult question because it's kind of open-ended, but could you share with us some different types of peer review bias and, in a sense, rank order uh, the level of concern you have associated with them? Well, thanks, Josh. It's a tricky one because a lot of the biases we would normally talk about would be intrinsic to the paper itself. You know, the biases, the biases relating to the design and the reporting of the study, that comes down to making sure that authors get the right statistical advice, the right ethical advice from the outset, and, and then that they've got the right training and support and guidance and checklist kind of approach sometimes to reporting the studies to make sure that those biases don't creep in. Uh, in relation to the, the peer reviewers themselves and the biases they might introduce, obviously a big one is 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 where there may be rivalry between two research teams, and um, we hope that that um, that doesn't impinge on the way reviewers uh, review other people's work. But we know that it it does, and and quite understandable human nature being what it is. And one of the reasons that we have open peer review at the BMJ was really to ensure that authors can be clear who has reviewed their paper and sometimes we the editors won't know what those rivalries might be and although authors might say please don't refer my paper to the following people obviously there's not an unending list of people you could you could um, exclude from that process so if the author sees that their review has been done by someone who they know to be an enemy or someone they don't entirely respect or trust, they could come back and tell us that. Whereas if they didn't know the name of the of the reviewer, that would be more difficult. So there, there's personal rivalry. There's um, per, uh, academic passion. Someone who's very committed to a specific way of seeing the world who might find it rather hard to to give credibility to a piece of work that criticizes or takes a different view. Um, and then obviously there are financial interests, uh, which again 
are in many ways easy to identify if they're properly declared and they're perhaps easier than those other ones I've mentioned to to track. But we do know that, that authors are, are poor at declaring financial interests even now and the same will almost certainly be true of peer reviewers. So it's one that I think we have to as editors be very alert to and to, to follow up. Again, it's one with open peer review that the authors themselves can point out if, if the peer reviewer has been less than less than comprehensive in their declaration. So those would be the three I would mention, personal rivalry or, or, or positioning, academic uh, passion and uh, financial conflicts of interest. And then, of course, when it comes to some topics that we might cover in the BMJ uh, commentary pieces, then religious beliefs and I suppose societal beliefs would, would be ones that we would want to know about as well if, if say, for example, someone's peer-reviewing a a commentary about um, assisted dying or abortion or any other contentious topic of that sort. You mentioned the authors coming back to you about the reviewers or potential conflicts of interest with, with reviewers. Does the BMJ have a policy or a general policy for um, author rebuttals? Um, I mean, if an article is rejected and the authors uh, rebut ejection, is there a specific policy that you guys use? Yeah, we've we've had for a, a long time a, a view that you know ed- journals make mistakes, and so mm-hmm. if we reject a paper and the authors want to come back and explain that they think we made the wrong decision, um, we are very interested to hear from them. The risk is, of course, that every author will do that, but we don't find that yeah. to be the case. Yeah. We find that authors do use this appropriately, and we're quite clear about the fact that authors who do bring a very good appeal request um, to have Mm -hmm. their article reconsidered stand a better chance of getting that article published than the average article. So I think our our rejection rate for uh, across the piece is 96%, so 4% acceptance, Uh, Mm. whereas for appeals it comes down to about um, 30%. Acceptance. So oh, that's interesting. These are people who we have taken the trouble to come back to us and explain why they think we've made the wrong decision. If they mm-hmm. ask for an appeal, we ask them to make a formal submission to explain why they think we should revisit the decision. So it's, it, it does require them to put some energy into that. And then do you send that out for re-review or is a, a panel that makes that decision? So sometimes the author will come back and we didn't peer review their paper externally and they'll be asking for external review. So that would be one Mm -hmm. approach. Another approach would be if the paper has been externally reviewed and they don't like uh, what the reviewers have said and they'd need to come back with very specific reasons for questioning the reviewers. They can't just say we don't agree. They've got to give us a reason for thinking we ought to seek further reviews, in which case we would the editors would make the decision to send the paper out for further review. Sometimes the paper will have gone right to the end um, to, of our processes to our final manuscript decision and have been rejected at that point, and in which case it would go back to that, that committee. Uh, they would have a look at it again and decide whether they think they made the wrong decision. And we're, okay. very, we're very happy to send papers out, you know, under certain circumstances to additional reviewers or uh, take other opinions on them. Great, thanks. And and just, Rob, just to pick up on your point about the research into peer review and your blinded versus uh, mm-hmm. double-blinded uh, policy, I think it's great that you're doing this, and certainly other journals have taken the double-blind approach. It's quite a lot of extra work, and uh, the, the reason the BMJ went down the open peer review route was uh, that we thought of if you were to take 
the, the most ethical positions for peer review. One would be double blind and the other would be double open, if you like, so that everyone mm -hmm. knew who everyone was. Our preference was to go for the completely open simply because we have a hang-up about transparency. Uh, but we did do a randomized trial of it before we introduced it. And, and that trial did find that the open, fully open was as good as uh, blinded review. So we felt that we were, we were at choice, if you like, having decided that it was as good as. We didn't, need it to be, we didn't feel we needed it to be better than because it was kind of like, we think this is the cool thing to do and let's see if it's feasible was really the, the, the question for the randomized trial. And, and I would just say that we do, we do experience adverse events. We had a, a, an email just the other day from someone who had given a, a negative view on a paper and they met the author at a conference and the author was you know, rather short with them and they thought that was the end of a nice friendship. And obviously there are occasions where that will happen. So we don't, we don't think it's, it's without negative effect, but overall we're pretty pleased. With respect to uh, Fiona's comments on bias, I think another nuance of, of the discussion is that many of the different types of bias are overlapped. And I think uh, the erudite discussion she had really covered many of the topics that we had in the article in terms of bias. But we'll just mention that we listed them recognizing that there's some overlap as content-based bias, confirmation bias, conservatism bias, publication bias, and bias of conflict of interest. And of course, in the article, we go into a little detail about each of those uh, biases. Um, Rob, having heard about those different types of biases, I guess I would ask, how do we at JNIS try to combat them, knowing that they can be fairly insidious? I'm not sure there's a specific answer to that, but there's certainly you know, is a problem with that. I think it's especially in our field, which um, tends to be a, a relatively small, subspecialized field that sort of lives on innovation. You know, so we have we have two different uh, poles of the conservative bias problem. As you know, Josh, I mean, we've uh, had a recent history over the last five years or so of having um, some major uh, trials come out that um, really showed no benefit uh, from some of the uh, therapies that, that we had been doing for, for a while. And so, you know, I think with that, people got a bit defensive. And, uh, you know, so then there's a, a tendency to um, sort of discount negative trials. I think that how we combat that is mainly for the for myself and, and also for the associate editors to have a bit more of an open mind uh, for negative trials. But I think we have a, a little bit of a difficulty on the other end. You know, I, I mentioned that we're, the field lives on its innovation, and, and fortunately, over the past 10 to 15 years, it's been a very innovative uh, field. But then, you know, you get into the bias or the problem where Authors, maybe more so in our field than a lot of fields, want to be recognized as being first or, or early. And so there are articles that are submitted that are, you know, the first case series with a certain device or whatever. And, you know, I think as editors, we then have to make a decision whether that really contributes to the medical li literature. I mean, sometimes it's the first application of this device uh, while the author was 
you know, standing on one leg, patting his head and running his, rubbing his tummy at the same time. So to sort of judge what, you know, whether that really is important for the medical literature, I think is important. I, I, I guess the other thing that we do, we do grade the reviewers to assess how well they're doing. But I think some of the issues that uh, were brought up, I'm not sure we have a great way of monitoring some of those potential biases or even correcting them. I will say that I do think that for uh, a relatively young journal, uh, we have adapted to try to address many of these types of bias, again, probably because we had the benefit of working with such a a knowledgeable publishing house. So, for example, our editor-in-chief, that's you, looks really at all articles, serves as a balance uh, across the different, if you call it, biases of the editors or even just their own natural tendencies to be more lenient or more uh, strict in terms of what they recommend for editorial acceptance. So, in fact, at JNIS, and this, this is a process that could be altered, but it's worked for us well. All articles are submitted to you for a recommendation, uh, meaning we just provide uh, our thoughts and our recommendation, and, and you serve as sort of balance between the different editors. Also, I think all of our reviewers do declare whether they have uh, competing interests, just like the authors. I think that's part of the Scholar uh, One process. You've, all, you've always been open to uh, having articles uh, resubmitted. I know that because you've asked me to look at some of those articles after they've been resubmitted if an author reaches out to you. What I would also say is that the um, journal itself, while uh, it's double-blind to the authors and to the, the reviewers, the editors are not blinded to that. And in fact, again, I think borrowing somewhat from uh, BMJ, the authors were allowed from the beginning to recommend uh, reviewers and also ask for reviewers that they thought would be uh, inappropriate for for their manuscript. So I think in different ways, uh, while we may not be specifically addressing those uh, bias ideas as formal concepts, we are probably trying to adapt our own process to, to be as fair and responsive as we can. Yeah, I, I, I really like um, Fiona's idea about um, real-time uh, reviews and having a community of, of reviewers. Albert Einstein was sort of the king of observational science, and he often argued that um, just by experimenting, you change the balance of the natural laws of physics, so the results you get don't uh, reflect reality. And, um, you know, I sort of witnessed that early on in the peer review process where, you know, I think that it's sort of natural for people who are asked to critique an article. I mean, they feel that their job is to find something wrong with that article. And there there may not be uh, much wrong with it, that article. I think it's very interesting. Uh, everything's been said around you know, the conservatism bias and the need for how to evaluate innovative science and how how surgery in particular functions with this sort of 
gradual iterative approach to change and, and at what point do you say this is a true innovation and therefore needs to be evaluated in a more formal way I think is very very tough and, and as has been mentioned one of the biases that afflicts the whole of the medical literature is, is this positive publication bias, reporting bias um, or otherwise called optimism bias which is the reverse if you like of your conservative bias or, or can in fact sorry feed a conservative bias because optimism being the new treatment is better than the old treatment any treatment is better than no treatment those sort of um, tendencies of, of doctors and scientists generally to, to, to want to intervene and to want to show that intervention is better than not intervening um, and the new drug is better than the old or whatever and, you know, their new approach, the surgeon's new approach of, of, of jumping on one leg and rubbing their belly is better than the, the previous guys. So I think we have to be aware of, of this as an issue. And, and certainly in terms of pos positive publication bias, again, that's a human thing of thinking that, that, that something positive is more interesting than a neutral or negative result and therefore worthy of publication um, and worthy of attention. We know this affects the whole of the literature, that actually uh, medical journals tend to show evaluations that that exaggerate benefits of treatment and, and underplay the harms of treatment and that's been shown again and again and again across across medicine and surgery how do we as editors and how do our peer review colleagues cope with that and the big approach that we are championing and, and others as well is is transparency because it seems hard to think how else to achieve clarity on this issue and that means uh, making sure the data as far as possible are available not only to the editors and peer reviewers but increasingly to the wider readership so that they can go and have a look and say whether they agree with the analysis. Uh, very few people will actually go and do that but the very fact that the authors would be asked to make their data available uh, one hopes will, will serve as a, as a support to prevent people over-interpreting their results. And the other piece of transparency we've uh, introduced is to um, publish alongside a published paper the pre-publication history. So that's the original submission, the editorial comments, the peer reviewer comments signed by the peer reviewer and the revised version and sometimes, you know, several attempts at a revised version before we publish the paper. And putting that out in the public domain, again, very few people will want to look at it, uh, but every so often a paper will go through our processes and be of huge interest and the peer review itself will be of huge interest. And, and then to have it up there is, is, a, is a benefit, we think, to the, to the scientific discussion. So all of this is really trying to shed light on what is a, a, a potentially very flawed and uh, limited process, but for the moment, the best that we can come up with. Fiona, I think that was a, a group of terrific points, and I would make the point that publication bias or optimism bias, as you described it, has further downstream challenges in this era of the uh, meta-analysis as king, if one has that type of bias, you can certainly have errors in effect size measurements later on when you're looking at the various meta-analyses. And I think I'll, I'll stick with you, uh, Fiona, as we draw to a close. There's been a lot of reports, I shouldn't say a lot of, there have been a number of disturbing reports about uh, fraud that we've recently heard about in the peer review process. My impression was that some of that was coming from the proliferation of open access journals, although I don't know if that is correct. I wonder if you might comment on peer review fraud and how open access might be impacting that seemingly uh, worsening phenomenon. Yes, I think it's really fascinating this. Um, I think the first thing I'd like to say is 
I find it helpful if people can try and keep the um, open access uh, as as a as a concept and as a as a practical thing that's happening in science. And, and I'm a great proponent of it, separate from the idea of peer review or not peer review or peer review and less good peer review, because they are very distinct. They seem to have um, come together, if you like, in a number of open access journals where the peer review has been less than good. But it's perfectly possible to have, uh, and, I, and I, I like to think that we are such a such a publishing house, to have um, open access journals with really good peer review and really good editorial processes that that that, that prevent as much as possible of, of fraud and error as any peer review process can. So the BMJ itself is an open access journal, and we have BMJ Open, and we have a number of specialty journals which have a, a mix of open access and non open access. So all of which I think have very good peer review processes. Uh, and then at the other end, you've got closed journals, no, non-open access with poor review processes. So uh, the, the two things, I think, are separate. Uh, but the problem that you're identifying, Josh, is, is absolutely right, that with the explosion of open access journals and this new business model around author fees, there's become a, a, a sort of incentive to uh, for those who want to make criminal uh, activity out of a scientific process so there's been an increasing number of reports of predatory journals where the authors are encouraged to submit their work and in fact it turns out that the the journal doesn't either exist or exist in a much limited form and the the author pays over an author fee and that's obviously a a, a criminal activity you might argue and it's clearly something we should we should try and clap uh, stamp down on and then there's um fraud around people using peer review as a way to inflate their careers and their curriculum vitae by creating uh, rings, if you like, of peer reviewers who are going to all make positive comment on each other's papers. And that, again, is a, a form of misconduct. And I think where that is identified, we need to be very uh, clear and stamp down on it. So the online environment creates a lot of space for these kind of things. And, and uh, also, as well as a lot of opportunity for good behavior, uh, a great deal of opportunity for bad behavior that we need to identify and um, try to make as impossible as we can. Isn't it true that technology is really an enabling uh, phenomena, whatever it is and at whatever point, and, and one can enable forces for good, which is probably uh, really true in the case of the proliferation of some of the high-level open access uh, journals like what we see at Biomed Central or PLOS One, or uh, the proliferation of some of these more marginal actors where really uh, the extent of the fraud becomes uh, quite surprising. And again, we did cover some of those activities in the article. But with that, I'm reminded of a quote by one of my uh, favorite dramatists, Bernard Shaw, who said that England and America are two countries separated by a common language. I think today our language was in fact uniform. I can't thank Fiona and Rob enough for putting together what I think was really a fantastic podcast. With that, I say goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank Josh. you very much, Josh.